Large for MMM, and welcome to the MMM podcast. We're starting a new segment this week. On each of these segments, which will air once every three months over the next year, agencies from the membership of the Medical Advertising Hall of Fame will appear on the program to talk about how they're progressing along the journey to diversity, equity, and inclusion. The MOF just updated its mission statement to address DEI in our industry, and all of the MOF's members are very passionate about that goal. During each episode, we'll hear from two agencies, ideally one network and one independent, about how their agencies are getting it done. I'm excited about it, too, because it means our podcast listeners will hear from more diverse voices, which we all love, and it deepens MMM's coverage of the healthcare ad industry's efforts to become more diverse, which is a goal our publication stands firmly behind. So you're in for a real treat. And now let's hear who our guests are for the kickoff episode of this four-part series. Drusilla Brown is Integrated Producer for Concentric Health Experience. Hey, Drusilla. Hi, um, my name is Drusilla Brown, as um, said, also known as Drew, and I am an Integrated Producer at Concentric Healthcare Experience, and um, it's a great experience. I love it so much, and um, I also am a graduate of Lincoln University, the first historically Black college and university in the nation, and I'm just happy to be here. Thank you, Mark. Absolutely. We welcome you. And uh, joining Drew on the, on the broadcast is Gina Pemberton. She is VP, Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion for Omnicom Health Group. Hey, Gina. Hi, Mark. So happy to be here. Great to chat with you as well as with Drew. As you mentioned, I am the VP, uh, Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Omnicom Health Group. I've been in the role for the last um, six months, so new to the role, but really excited to talk more about what what we're doing and and how we can make an impact. I too am a graduate of an HBCU. I graduated from Hampton University, so I'm very excited to be on this uh, chat with a a fellow HBCU grad. That is awesome, yeah. Uh, And we're thrilled to have you both here with us uh, for the next 20, 25 minutes or so. We'll get to more of the interview with Gina and Drew in a moment. Just a few housekeeping items, as we usually do on this podcast. This year's class of MMNM 40 Under 40, highlighting the next wave in marketing and health tech, is live on our site. And the virtual award ceremony is this week, March 25th, to be exact. If you missed it, be sure to check out the replay at mmm-online.com. And as the deadline for submission to the MMM Awards approaches, we taped our annual Awards Uncovered webcast. That was a couple of weeks ago. If you missed that, check out the on-demand replay for tips and how-tos for crafting award-winning entries from two veteran jurors. Uh, and that's also on our website. Uh, speaking of the MMM Awards, now in their 18th year, they're open for nominations with the first deadline coming up April 21st. And MMM Transform, Navigating the Next, our spring conference, We'll be gathering under the theme of uh, Navigating the Next, and it's free to register. Uh, it's coming up May 4th to the 6th. We've got some great keynotes already announced for that, so uh, be sure to check that out as well. And you can always find out more about these events um, at the all-new mmm-online.com. Okay, now back to the interview. Thank you for introducing yourselves earlier. Uh, let's just start off with kind of a uh, market uh, question. Ad agencies as a whole are, are making a slow progress in diversifying the workplace. Representation for Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the ad industry, uh, which stands at about 34%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, lags the national average, which is around 41%, uh, according to 2020 data. While leadership teams are more than 80% white male, would you say the situation is the same, better or worse within healthcare agencies in terms of progress there? I would definitely say 
at my agency and my department when I first started was very diverse. It was the most diverse um, department there, actually. I've actually never had a white male direct um, <laughs> manager, which is, you know, odd. starting this year was my first time actually having a white boss at all. Um, and she's a uh, female. So it's it's been a very different um, experience than I would have thought coming into corporate America. But most of the other um, departments are not, they lack more diversity. So I do agree with this. I definitely see a lot of leadership roles, the higher up leadership roles to white males. So um, I definitely think that's something that needs to be changed. Yeah, well, it's, it's encouraging to hear that your experience, you know, Drew and, and concentric, you know, kind of um, was different than, you know, what the statistics would suggest, which which is a sign of progress. Gina, where, where do you stand on that one? Yeah, I think um, I think everywhere you look, there are some signs of progress. And then I think there's a lot of areas where it's the same. So, um, you know, it, it can differ department to department, kind of what uh, Drew shared earlier. I think if I look across the um, agencies within my network, there's a lot of drive and focus in making a difference in this particular area um, um, by bringing in new talent or looking at our current talent to see if we can get them into different positions and showcasing um, more of what their their capabilities are so that they can take on leadership roles. But I would say that as we're starting to really drive some focus there that we would probably be about the same as it relates to where the progress is, is going as the statistics you shared. Um, I'm really excited though to talk again next year so we can talk about how it's changed over the course of this year because I think there's a lot of work that we're putting in to drive that those changes. That's great. That's also very encouraging to hear. And, you know, amen to that. Um, I hope the situation continues to to get better. You know, after the death of, of George Floyd last summer, um, you know, we saw a lot of agencies kind of reset their DE&I hiring goals. Talk about how your agencies reset their own uh, objectives in the talent department. Uh, Gina, can we stay with you on that one? Sure, of course. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that because I I'd like to say I'm kind of a result of that, right? You know, leadership within OHG, um, we're already on the path forward to bringing in someone into this position. But after the death of George Floyd, we had a lot of uh, employees pulled together in a grassroots way to develop a resource group, um, the Black Collective. And I think that Black Collective has, has really driven a lot more attention into this area by, you know, coming, uh, working with our town acquisition to to look at how we're recruiting to make sure we have a more robust process and and also about driving the um, more thought around what talent should be brought in, et cetera. So I think, um, you know, my role has come in, um, I came in at the end of October and we're already making big um, strides and changes to kind of focus in on there by whether we build, build in an entry-level pipeline program or um, based on our partnerships with other nonprofit groups to try and uh, drive us to more um, diverse talent or uh, Black talent so that we're able to hire and bring in more, more of that great talent that's out there. Sounds like you're making some good grassroots efforts there to, um, you know, find find the talent, which which definitely is out there, right? Yeah. Um, Drew, what, what about you? How, how did Concentric kind of pivot in terms of its uh, DE&I hiring goals last year? To my knowledge, because, you know, I'm not really in HR, so I don't want to speak too much 
about that. But um, I definitely think that um, our hiring processes have always been community driven. They try to get people with a wide variety of backgrounds and stuff like that. So it's also a lot of recommendation. So what I've seen is people in the industry, they recommend people in the industry that they worked with. So if they worked at a predominantly white agency, you get more people that are predominantly white that are, um, you know, recommended and um, subsequently uh, hired. But I definitely see a a change for the better in reaching out and um, that aspect. So I have been working with um, HR with the HBCU initiative kind of um, for the internship and apprenticeship program. I've reached out to a lot of my um, graduates, my fellow graduates of HBCUs to see if they can get people who um, students to come in and actually work with us under us. So we're bringing them in from the root up so we can teach them so they can go out into the world and actually learn what's going on in the advertisement world. So I think that's um, an important fact. And also I think VE and I in general blew up at our agency because now it was, oh, George Floyd died. This is something that's very important. So I think people have been more aware. So they mentioned V and I, um, it went from a small little committee now to being mentioned at our Monday morning meetings every morning. It's like, okay, this is what's going on this week with DE&I. They're reading this book. They're watching this movie. They're doing this, getting more of our information out there. So I think that's definitely a positive that something that came out of that, you know, spreading more awareness. Your question was more around how is this impacting the hiring goals? I think that um, I would argue that most of the uh, impact is what Drew ended on there about um, increased awareness and impact to the culture. Because I think that that's what's the key is to kind of build out a inclusive culture so that individuals feel like they can be themselves, that they can come to work, that they're seen and heard. And that will in turn make them start to refer more people to want to work there and have the same experience. So I think there's a twofold piece where we're looking for talent through, you know, the organizations, HBCUs or whatever route that we go about, but also about how can we drive that change in the culture as well. Absolutely. And uh, I would imagine the more we do on the diversity front, the easier in in terms of recruiting, the easier the second goal gets in terms of making it an inclusive culture, because it's just going to make people feel more comfortable. You know, the more they see that, hey, this company is taking this seriously. I feel like I'm not alone if I need to speak up about something that's not appropriate on the advertising front or, you know, some other aspect. Drew, just to follow up on a point that you mentioned about the uh, HBCU apprenticeship program, I'm just curious, you know, what's the appetite on campus for, you know, working in the healthcare marketing industry? I know when I was in school, there was like the mass comm majors, that's all like with um, advertising and stuff like that, all those people together, it was huge. They they pretty much ran the campus, right? So I know there's a lot of people that may not have considered to go into healthcare like me, because I was a poli-sci major. So it was, I went totally left. Um, and I think it's great to learn from healthcare. So once you learn healthcare, this is like the hardest type of advertisement. So I've heard from people that have, you know, done consumer and then um, healthcare as well. It's so hard because we have all these regulatory reviews and all that kind of stuff. So if they learn from that, from like you get all that information, and I feel like it'll be easier for you to branch out into all types of different advertisement because you have all that rigorous training. So I think it's definitely um, 
a good starting point, even if like the end goal down the line isn't so much healthcare. Apprenticeship and the internship program isn't necessarily exactly with the HBCUs. They go to other schools as well. But I saw a need to have more diverse interns and apprentices. So I you know, offered my services in that point. And, um, you know, Gina, I just wanted to follow up on the point that you were just talking about, the importance of an inclusive culture. I've heard people of color say it's it's very difficult to be in a, in a, in a professional environment, you know, where one does not see people that look like me, you know, as, as one moves up the ranks. To the extent that that's improving, I'm glad to hear that. You know, not to get too personal here, but, you know, do you, do you ha- are you having those moments less and less in, in this new job? Of seeing uh, people that look like me or less? Or not, not seeing people who, you know, oh. look like you. You know, those yeah. uncomfortable moments, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that that goes with, you know, uh, I've had a long career. i am um, been been working for over a certain amount of years. Um, a lady never tells. But um, <laughs> starting out my career, there were not a lot of people that looked like me that were in leadership positions as I shifted myself around and I found um, some places that work for me, I was able to kind of see more and more of that. I would argue since I've come over into uh, Omnicom Health Group, what I've been able to see with throughout the whole network is that there's a lot of drive. Um, there's a lot of female leadership, which is um, great to see. There is, you know, still still a, a, a drive that we need to do to get some more Black or people of color leadership in our ranks. But I think that um, there are a lot of people around that I'm able to, you know, see that look like me that are doing great things that may not be just in those positions yet. But I think that um, the opportunities are there. But, you know, growing up in any kind of industry, and especially as you come out of a historically Black college, I think when you first come to work, there's always going to be that um, sticker shock of coming from a different community than what you've been at for the last four years. And then coming into corporate America, no matter where you end up and kind of not really seeing a lot of people because it's a systemic problem across whatever industry that there isn't a lot of um, diversity in leadership or in positions that um, in, in quotes, I'd say have power. Uh, most of those are still the the old the old boy club. So it's, you know, not not even being infiltrated by other ethnicities or uh, genders. So I think there's still a long way to go, but I what I am seeing in the organization I am in is that the we we don't have a gender issue. We do have some some work to still do as it relates to um, people of color. But I'm really impressed with what the direction is that we're we're going into now. Great, that that is that's great to hear. And uh, Drew, I know you, you were shaking your head there quite a bit. Um, you know, from from your point of view, in, in terms of like the urgency of, uh, you know, upping the representation of people of color, you know, how, how do you um, frame those discussions when, when you're having them, you know, internally uh, with colleagues? Yeah, so I definitely think it's very important. Like, I agree with, like, 100% what Gina was saying. It's so important to have people of color in the room, because you don't want to have situations where it's like, oh, you send something out there and it's like, that's totally not aligned with what people in that culture would be, you know, okay with. And I think that's important. It can be um, discouraging at times, especially since I recently graduated from college and, you know, coming from historically black college with everybody pretty much looked like me. You had, you know, 
to going into corporate America when people don't. But also, I, it's not too discouraging just because it's been my life my entire life. Like, this, it's, it's nothing new. Nine times out of 10 Black kids were told by their parents, you work twice as hard to be considered half as good as your white counterparts, right? So we already know what it is in the outside world. It's kind of like, you always have to work harder and harder to get to those goals. So I think that um, it's always just, you know, pushing through, even if you get discouraged at times, or even if you, you think more people should be at the higher rank, you're always working harder so you can be that person. Because it only takes one person to inspire the masses, right? So if you see someone who's like a VP and you're like, oh, wow, she's a black woman, I can do that, you know, and that inspires the next generation and then you see more and more people because I think it's all about the inspiration. Like if you continue to inspire people who are coming after you, then 10 years from now, five years from now, you're gonna see more black women VPs. You're gonna see more black um, and people of color and leadership because you know once you see it, then you can like actually believe it and you can think it's tangible. You, uh, you both told me that you benefited from great training. Um, you know, when an agency hires someone relatively new to healthcare, the hiring speaks to commitment. Um, you know, the larger point here is that what will help drive real change is being open to diverse backgrounds and not always holding out for someone with an extensive pharma or science record. Do you think that uh, an inability to train is holding back agencies in the hiring area? Gina, what do you think? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's an inability to train. I think it's the culture to to include training. I think a lot of uh, people get into their roles and it's about go, 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 because that's the way the culture is um, within the agency world of, you know, you got to get people that are billable right away. And I think that when that happens, it, it can cause um, something has to give, right? And a lot of times the thing that gives is that that timing to be able to do that training. But I think everyone's capable. The ability to train is there. I think it's more about the the culture and the ability of time to to do that training. Right, because uh, you know, an out of the box hire, so to speak, you know, someone who comes from a non traditional right. healthcare non healthcare role, it takes time to bring that person along. Whereas you're saying um, hiring is oftentimes necessitated by a new account or um, you know, a win where you, you've got to kind of get somebody in who can hit the ground running. Uh, but that just, you know, speaks to the need, you know, to take a very deliberate approach and, and think about this, you know, a couple of months before you have that, right. that need, right? Exactly. And to think about, you know, when, when you are in that space, I mean, you know, we're at a point where there's a new generation that's coming out of college, right? And that generation is not going to have the experience that everybody is used to kind of getting in this um, healthcare agency world. And if we don't start to think outside of the box, whether it is with entry level or mid-level or as we move up, there's going to be a point in time when there's no one that has really that the skill set that's necessary in order to to fill the roles the way that everyone is kind of used to it now. So I think you're right. I think there's got to be some Let's put in a little extra time into our hiring plan so that we can get a person up to speed on a particular product or line of business if they don't have that skill set. And, you know, Drew, I know you you, uh, you told me that you benefited from great training, too. Um, I'm sure a Concentric has its own uh, cultural curriculum. What else can you tell me about uh, what uh, your agency is doing to up the number of uh, Black, Indigenous and people of color and all levels of your workforce. 
So um, I definitely did benefit from training. My managers really, really put their time to train me, which I really appreciate. And I've seen it that happen in different departments as well. So I think that's very important. Like there's a lot of people like straight out of college that get the training that we need. And even virtually, like I've seen people like really be patient with their mentees in a way and um, their subordinates. So I think that's very important. At my job, I think more so, like I said, the um, what I've been doing is with helping HR with the HBCU student, um, bringing in the um, interns and an apprenticeship program. That's mostly what I've seen because, you know, again, I don't work at, um, with HR, so I don't know how exactly how they're bringing people in at different levels. But I think that's a, um, a great first step into bringing in from the ground up. Um, you know, we all agree that diversification is not only a good business, but when we talk about marketing teams in healthcare, the consequences of not having BIPOC at the table are more serious than in CPG. A speak up culture can prevent culturally insensitive campaigns from going out the door. You know, how do you instill such a culture when there are as yet not a lot of people of color within the agency? And you know, Drew, how about we stick with you on this one? Okay, so definitely think it's very important to take um, a chance on people from different backgrounds because they provide a unique viewpoint that those trains in pharma may not have. And then, you know, like the diversity helps everyone in the agency from the agency to the client. And we've all seen the ads that it's like really cringy when you're like, why did they let this happen? You know, and nine times out of 10, either they didn't have a diverse people at the table per se, or they didn't have the culture of speaking up. Like, you know, people felt that they couldn't say something at the table. Like, you know, with um, Kendall Jenner with the Pepsi commercial, like who <laughs> was like, okay, this is fine. Or like the Dove commercial with the, um, the Facebook ad when they were pulling over the t-shirts and it came from a black woman to a white woman that whole thing. I'm like, I looked at those, you know, campaigns, even though they're not pharma, but I was just like, okay, so why did that happen? And you had a black person in there that, you know, felt like they could voice their opinion and stuff like that. I think it would have been totally different. So I think to save people money in the, in the future, to just hire some other um, people in that culture that you're trying to reach. And I think it would be um, very beneficial because then you know that, okay, somebody will check you and say, hey, maybe doing this is not the best idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we need more people at the table and we need to have the right culture. Gina, from your position being uh, you know, VP of DE&I and Omnicom Health Group, you spoke earlier about the need to instill that culture, but how, how do you do it? Yeah, I think you, you have to do it in um, phases. I mean, and, and um, you know, we're kicking that off now with um, what, what we're calling healthy inclusion, which is going to be, um, it has uh, multiple facets, but right now the the key um, kickoff for it is um, some intensive training that we're going to have all of our employees go through that that includes, you know, inclusive mindset, anti-racism training, unconscious bias, like 2.0, like not the usual one that you see, but the one that's a little bit more intensive. And then also providing some training for our people managers to make sure that they they understand the the, the inclusive mindset needed as a manager on top of just within um, as an individual contributor. And then lastly, we're gonna do some training as it relates to how to uh, showcase allyship in action. And I think all of those things, you know, we're doing in a very robust way and not just um, having people go to classes, but also having some group discussions where we're able to apply 
what we're learning in those those courses in order to our you know our everyday work lives um, to help drive that. We're also working on building out um, the culture by you know getting some more resource groups set up within um, our network as well as partnering um, with each other to talk about a little bit more about what we've been doing across our network as it relates to health disparities and what what all of the agencies have been working on to drive that. Because I think that can also light some fires under people because it'll make them feel like, you know, there's more being done to help those individuals that are BIPOC or people that are looking for more of those instances that make them feel like they are seen and heard. People want to know that they're working for a company that is conscious of these is issues and, and is doing something about it, right? That is the key, the key factor. Um, Cause you don't want to feel like you work for the one company that doesn't care. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Cause right. that means you've made a full bad choice and you don't want to be that. You don't want to be there. And I, and I, I don't think, you know, we're not in that, in that space here, but I think it's important for, while we can't get everyone in the doors yet um, to, to fill every role, I think the next step is making sure people feel like that they're at a place that does, does care. The unconscious bias training, I think that's like so essential because a lot of people don't understand that they have that bias, right? So once you have those trainings, like I've done um, them a few times in the past and I'm like, wow, I need to check myself because I think I'm like, you know, this overly accepting person. And I'm like, oh, okay, these are certain things. So I I'm, I'm definitely think there's people out there that don't mean to say or do the things that they do, right? It's just all about learning and moving forward. That's the important thing to do because once you understand that you're, do you're doing something wrong that's hurting somebody and make that change. And once that person mm-hmm. makes that change, it, it can make the work environment like way better. Yeah, that, that's a really nice insight. I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, when, when they've said something that's insensitive or um, that they're leaving somebody out or, you know, that their words can be um, hurtful um, at the worst and just not inclusive to the extent that training can help raise that consciousness level. Um, they just need to know about it. Um, okay, just uh, you know, a couple of the questions, and I'll let you go here. Um, any other things that are impeding progress, you know, from your points of view in this effort to up uh, diversity within the agency world? I would definitely say, like, something that's hindering the progress would be lack of diversity, because it doesn't really impact the white community they didn't really understand what was going on, right? And then it was like, nobody, everyone was used to say like, oh, there's not a race issue. I'm colorblind or this, you know, all those, those are things that we were hearing like in the everyday life. They would just literally say that to our face. Like there's no, there's, there's nothing wrong. You know, Obama's president. Like I've literally heard that from people and I'm like, that doesn't erase all of the systematic racism that's going on, right? So, um, I think a lot of people didn't understand or see a problem until George Floyd was murdered, actually, you know, because then a lot of people were like, whoa, this is what's happening in America. And we're like, yeah, we've been trying to tell you. So I think that was like the moment that people are really like coming to terms with there being some type of race issue. The black community and people of color were like, black people are getting killed by police every day. And it's on camera every day, but I'm not sure why this time, this, this time really stuck with people. But I think that is the time that it really, that's what, not what we needed, but what people needed to see 
how what's happening every day kind of thing. And I think that is the issue. People, um, a lot of people can't relate to the issue because just it's not happening to them. So if something's not happening to you, you're not conscious of it going on, but we're conscious of it going on because it happens to us every single day. Yeah, great, great points. I mean, I, as a white man, I can come in and out of the race discussion as I please, so to speak, you know, whereas somebody who's black obviously doesn't have that luxury. And so I see what you're saying. You know, it's, uh, you know, you, you live it all the time. America, you know, for whatever reason, that was the tipping point. I think also everybody being kind of cooped up at home last year during the pandemic uh, had something to do with it. You know, we all saw that videotape as horrific it was to see uh, Mr. Floyd, you know, killed at the hands of the police officer and Karen in the park. Also, that video surfacing around that time where a woman who later became you know, dubbed as Karen in the park played off of prejudice and, you know, accused a black man, you know, threatening her when, when he clearly wasn't. But that was also, you know, a factor. Um, and, you know, we're asking ourselves, have we come all that far, you know, in the last uh, 11, 12 months? Um and I think obviously the jury's still out. Um, it's, it's good to see the, the progress being made here, you know, in our corner uh, of the of the of the industry, and, and uh, it's very encouraging. Um, one final question, and I'll let you let you both go. You know, and, and I know, uh, you know, Gina, you know, this is not necessarily your bailiwick because uh, you're more on the organizational side. Uh, but for Drew, can you share some of your experiences in working on healthcare campaigns that speak to communities of color? Most of the brands that I've worked on, the drugs. Um, impact the communities of color and um, black communities. So um, I work on um, a diabetes drug and that disproportionately affects the black community heavily. We have black people on those brands and I think you can tell, right? Because then we have people in the room that's like, okay, this is how this affected my dad. And you know, this is how this affects this person. And you having that first person experience. And I think it's like so crucial to how it's advertised to black people. I also work on a sickle cell drug. The majority of people affected are black people. So that's also something that's very um, crucial and that we can understand, we can feel that in our communities because you know I personally am a holder of the sickle cell gene, right? So you know I can tell first experience, like this is how I feel and this is how my family have dealt with, I've, you know, I personally have people who passed away and my family from sickle cell. So once you have that firsthand experience, it makes it a lot easier to market to people because you know what they're going through. Last year, one of my first brands that I worked on, we did a photo shoot and um, they were picking out models and they were picking out um, a black model and she had natural hair. And I was like, okay. And I was explaining to the team, they asked, they was like, oh, so how, you know, how you get your hair? Like, you know, your hair like this, I want the hair, you don't want her hair to look like this. And I'm like, okay, so you have to do this type to get this type of curl if you want it to look like that in that photo shoot. And I think that's very important because the people there, they would have been like, okay, just do, you know, what come whatever. And you know, that's not the ideal way that you want to go about it. So I think that was a um, important moment to have somebody in the room because you're like, okay, it's not going to always look like that. This is what this is going to have to be like that. So I think that was very crucial from everywhere from the big problems to the small problems because people of that community will be able to see the genuine advertisement as opposed to, okay, this is what we thought you would like. Not so much that this is actually what, you know, Black people could relate to, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, helping helping keep you know the the communications efforts appropriate and, and targeted to the communities that they're you know meant meant for. I just want to circle back uh, to what's impeding you know progress one more because I think Gina, you had a couple uh, points to make. Gina, from your point of view, what else is impeding progress uh, in this area? The thing I wanted to add was that everyone has to be more comfortable in uncomfortable discussions. And I think that the more we don't do that, the more it's gonna impede progress. So um, I would just like anyone that's listening that isn't a person of color to really be ready to kind of sit in those uncomfortable discussions. Like you said, Mark, you can come in and out of situations about race, but I think it's important that everyone that that does come into them is at least open and ready to have the real discussion, because I think if we don't have those uncomfortable conversations, progress is never going to keep going. And I think it's time now more than ever to lean into that uncomfortable um, feeling because that's the only way we're going to get change. Yes, definitely. I agree with that. And also I would want to add on something else. Do your research. (laughs) Like, I think a lot of times, like, you know, people outside of the people of color community they really expect for us to educate them when there's always Google. Like there's books, there's so much out there. And um, I'm not the spokesperson for every black person, right? You know, Gina's not the spokesperson for every black person because everybody has their own experience. So when you have, um, if this is before you could go out and hire a whole bunch of black people to be on your team, you know, just pick up, you know, go on Google, pick up a book and see, you know, are you culturally sensitive? I know uh, we always went by the phrase, treat others the way you want to be treated. But I would say treat others the way they want to be treated. Because just because you want to be treated a certain way doesn't mean that they want to be treated a certain way. You want advertised to Black people how they want to be advertised to, as opposed to how you think that you would want to see this advertisement on the TV. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. And I'll just add in, from a Jewish point of view, it's framed slightly different from what you said, Drew. It's don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. First, do no harm. You know, For instance, there was a a podcast, I believe, in one of the medical journals recently that they were going to be talking about um, structural racism in the medical profession, which we've heard a lot about, that it exists. You know, we've heard first-person accounts from from physicians of color, clinicians, and they had two doctors on there who didn't even believe that it existed. And it, it went south from there, you know, and, and they got a lot of flack, as you can imagine, on social media. Um, and they, they realized that, you know, that was that was a misstep. But first acknowledge, you know, that there's a problem. Do your research. White people, there is Google. I like how you said that. Uh, very direct. <laughs> You're going to show up in these discussions and, you know, do your research, have an open mind. And I agree, you know, the, the impetus is not on Black America to increase the cultural sensitivity of white America. You know, I think if anything, George Floyd's, may, may he rest in peace, but may his legacy also be that, you know, we, we have a collective responsibility to um, become more sensitive culturally and that a more diverse workplace benefits all of us um, and a, a more diverse world benefits all of us for that matter. So kudos to you both. I want to thank you both, uh, you know, for your insightful comments about progress on the DE&I front in the healthcare agency world, progress and, and what's also impeding it. 
Uh, and for our first uh, MOF DE and I podcast, this was a hit. So thank you so much for that. If you all liked this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your audio programming and help us discover the show. Okay, that'll do it for another episode of the MMNM Podcast. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.